0: Welcome back to GM Talks. I'm Keegan. Uh, My lovely assistant, Brennan, could not join us. He was stuck at work. So we're going to just have a nice interview with Josh Heath. Josh Heath runs Werewolf the Podcast, as well as is a member of High Level Games. I met him at a Gen Con uh, last year and met him at the Grand Masquerade in 2016, I believe.
1: That's right. I'd actually forgotten that we met at uh, at Grand Masquerade, so thanks for bringing that memory back.
0: <laughs> no problem. Oh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. I, um, I'm i excited to be here and chat, and I always like talking to you, so it's definitely going to be a good time.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'll start with Brennan. Brennan sent me some questions for you, actually. Uh, his first question is pretty pretty straightforward, almost... Uh, kind of a standard these days is uh, do you prefer to play or do you prefer to run your games?
1: Uh, That is such a good question and it's such a hard one to answer because in some ways I love to always be the GM um, creating the world knowing the mechanics doing all of the kind of back end work is something that I enjoy because I always feel like I need to be involved in some way but then when I get the chance to be a player in a game that's run by a good GM or a good storyteller it's Uh, always an enlightening experience because I'm learning things from them and I'm getting a chance to just kind of be there and bask in the entire uh, element of the game. So I would say I really enjoy doing both, but I'd probably lean towards enjoying being the storyteller or the GM more than anything.
0: Uh, I'd have to agree. I I do prefer storytelling, though when I get to play, usually at Gen Con, I go ham, full ham.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's the way to do it. If you're going to play, like, just lean into it and be the player that you want to have all your players be at the table.
0: One of my players, actually, for the werewolf game, Riley, she ran a and d game for me for my birthday. And what she, And she's like, just invite the friends you want. And so I invited my other regular player, Michael, who is, like, my go-to on all questions, Crunch. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty crunch savvy. I'm not nearly as crunch savvy as him. And so we both built monstrosities because he's like, level 15! And we're like, okay.
1: Oh, awesome.
0: And so I was a warlock with like a wand of fireball and I built him to the point where he had like a plus, I think it was like a plus 12 to his Eldritch Blast to hit.
1: Wow.
0: And you could tell she was just like, Oh! Okay, I also did the really, really cheap trick um, with warlocks where uh, you can do push and pull with uh, the Eldritch Blast by pushing something five feet and pulling it five feet. And when you level up, eldritch, you actually roll multiple times for Eldritch Blast, and each one's a separate hit. So I did Cloud of Daggers on a giant, which automatically did a certain amount of damage. Then I did Eldritch Blast to pull him out then Eldritch Blast to push him in, which automatically triggers more damage.
1: That is amazing. It's funny <laughs> because people say, oh, 5e isn't, you can't be as, uh, as um, munchkin-y in 5e as you could in 3.5 or anything like that. And I'm like, no, no, you can be, if you really try hard at it, it yeah. is very possible.
0: <laughs> my, uh, my Mine is, you can, the most Munchkiny person is going to be better than someone who didn't optimize. Mm -hmm. But if you have a group of munchkins and non-munchkins, the power discrepancy is at least small enough to where the non-munchkins don't feel useless.
1: That's totally true. That is an advantage of 5e is it's designed so even if you don't intentionally know or even don't know how to maximize your character in one way or another, you're still going to feel like a hero. So that's always a good thing.
0: Yeah, I really like that about it. Uh, overall, I do like some of the, uh, the hardcore hacks to make it a little more, uh, OSR-y.
1: What but, sort of things are you thinking about? That oh, either? there's,
0: there's two, there's two books that I really like. One is a, uh, modification for, are you, uh, familiar with, with, uh, Harn World or Harm?
1: Oh, only really obliquely. I, I know of it, but I've never gotten a chance to read any of it or play any of it. So okay. I know. Of uh, it.
0: I read the character creation section, and it like takes you several hours. And you can die in your first combat from, and not even from combat. You might get a wound in combat, and then die of an infection later in the session.
1: Well, at least that's realistic, I suppose.
0: It's 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 t- it is touted as one of the most realistic RPGs, at least in terms of that part of it like it has whole things about trade disputes trade routes things like that how things affect the economy so it's like built for that but like that is not a that is usually how i see it is high lethality games should come with easy fast character creation
1: right it sounds like that is long character creation and lethal combat
0: yep and it's high lethality which I, i get to some degree but because it, it, the more realistic a game is, the more crunchy it is. Sure. But they do cool things. There's a uh, free um, 5e conversion where it gives you rules for morale, mass damage, lingering injuries, last chance kind of stuff, um, how to make morale checks. And then it also has things like a, a level cap and uh, some other really cool stuff to make the game feel a little more dangerous.
1: That all sounds cool. It sounds like something to dig into. And you said it was free, so yeah, I might have and, to go out and look for it.
0: And the other one is from a guy called uh, Runehammer Games. He did the Index Card RPG. He used to do something called uh, Drinkins and Dragons, where he'd bring out like his little notebook, pretending to have whiskey or actually drinking whiskey. I, you know, kind of hard to tell. Uh, okay. <laughs> and he did that. He wrote D and D Five E Hardcore Mode. And that has things like, you have to roll to cast, but you don't have spell slots anymore. But if you fail to cast, you lose the spell for the day. Uh, Along with, like, critical failure charts for your spells. And then it was a roll for HP every level, including first level. So you could start with, like, one HP.
1: Oh, ouch. That makes sense, though. That's not, that's, like, a slightly hardcore rule, but I... Um, I got so used to doing that in the 3.0 era that it doesn't shock me too much.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it, 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 they're cool little hacks and things like that. And then, of course, both of them have a short rest is an eight-hour rest, and a long rest is you have to wait a week.
1: Oh, wow! Yeah, that definitely makes things a lot more uh, difficult if you're a caster with all those, you know, rest requirements.
0: Well, that's the uh, that's part of the reason why uh, they had the roll to cast, so you don't have slots anymore.
1: That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, that makes... That, I guess, balances out a little bit.
0: Yeah. Uh, my favorite OSR-ish game, though, is still Dungeon Crawl Classics.
1: I yeah. keep hearing good things about it, and I honestly need to play uh, it at one of these... Uh, at a convention or one of these days, because I hear good things, and I do enjoy a good, you know, Dungeon Crawl OSR experience, so...
0: Yeah, it's it's now. a lot of fun. The the funnel is like one of my favorite elements of the game. Mm. Easily one of my favorites because it's uh it's um basically you roll up 3 to 5 random characters completely randomized at level 0 and whoever makes it at the, to the end of the adventure it's like congratulations you're level 1. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's awesome. That is a great way of going about it. Like, all right, you've survived all of these, uh, you know, horrible things. Now you are a basic level character.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of great. Uh, it's, it does do the uh, the race class thing where elves are a class in that one, which I know modern RPGs are rightfully drifting away from, but there's a certain charm to it still, I think.
1: Yeah. It's, that's one of those things that uh, it's a weird little quirk, but it's certainly fun to play with it every now and then. I know um, I have a copy of uh, a board game, um, Dragon Strike, that actually includes an elf as one of the character, um, character concepts that you can play. You've got a warrior and uh, uh, an elf and then a dwarf. So, you know, they're, they're fun to play every now and then.
0: Yeah, and then uh, I got Brendan's other question for you here. What okay. is your favorite flavor of character slash NPC to create and or run?
1: Oh, gosh, that's such a hard question, too. Um, <laughs> let's see. Ask it of me again, and I'll see if I can give you a good answer.
0: Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you give you some time to think. Um. Mine is, uh, mine might also be a hard question because uh, as anyone who has listened to this particular show for any length of time is we don't softball around these parts. Josh, welcome to the lion's den.
1: I'm ready.
0: <laughs> is um, how do you think your writing has affected how you run games in positive ways?
1: That's a good question. So one of the things that I try to do in my writing work is give characters and players honest options that are not always combat-oriented. So the traditional sort of challenge that you would put in front of a group of players in a traditional D&D game or something like that is, hey, here's a conflict scenario. Go out and destroy it. Celebrate that you destroyed the thing and move on. But in my writing work, I've spent a lot of time trying to find ways to put challenges in front of players that require them to think around it so that conflict isn't necessarily, or physical conflict isn't necessarily, the answer to whatever the problem is that they're facing. It might be, it might be a completely valid direction to go in if there are no other options or if they're facing something that is clearly. A um, uh, monster that there's no way to communicate with it, but there are oftentimes where I'll put in scenes and scenarios where there is a a moral question of is it okay to just kill whatever it is that is attacking me? What is that the implication of that long term, and how is that going to come around and bite me in the future if we just take the murder hobo angle on this? So that's one of the things that I try to integrate into all of my games now is that there's this sense of a question of what is the right direction to go in with this. And I think I've learned to do that through the writing work that I've done um, in the industry over the years.
0: Okay, Uh, that'll bring me to a question. Another question I have then that just made me think of how do you... How do you work through and how do you create and what inspires some of your moral dilemmas in games?
1: Mm. So I try and think of what's realistic. You know, if um, if you encounter a group of, let me use an example from a forthcoming adventure that I'm going to be kickstarting here pretty soon. Um, there is a dungeon that you go into. Effectively, there's no other way to describe the initial part of this adventure. But there's a dungeon that you go into. And you see all of this uh, information on the walls. And all of that information leads you to believe that what is going to be inside this um, temple or this dungeon is going to be a demon of some sort. So for me, I like to look at real world cultures and say, what are things that people make misinterpretations of? What um, mistakes do we make when we're interpreting archaeology? and information from other cultures and then how do we how do you turn that into a decision that needs to be made in a game and if you are looking at these things in this dungeon and you're assuming oh this is evil this is clearly a story that's telling us about this particular type of demon because of the types of images or um, motifs that you're uh, used to from your own culture and then you you find out afterward that what you were seeing was completely misinterpreted, um, it adds some really interesting moral questions when you have that sort of like clear, um, this is a complete like misinterpretation of, um, of a cultural element. I don't know if that answered your question, but that's okay. sort of the direction it took me in.
0: All right, do you think you're ready to answer Brennan's tough question or do you need more time?
1: oh okay so ask me the question again so i can answer it
0: all right uh what is what's your favorite flavor of character slash npc to play slash run
1: i think the favorite one there are two that are my favorites the first one is the creepy villain the villain that is really powerful and twisted and has a completely alien view of reality um this might be as a Zemisi in vampire the masquerade it might be a black spiral dancer and werewolf the apocalypse it might be an aberrant in trinity aeon whatever it is i really enjoy playing the creepy doctor or the creepy villain that is just so outside of human understanding and uh morality um i find that particularly fascinating and enjoyable to um, bring to the table for my players to have to try to figure out how do we interact with this thing and then weave our way around it um, to get to wherever we need to go. Either we need to kill this thing or we need to figure out how to work with it long enough to um, get away from it. Um, That for me is one of them. And then the other one Is a completely different direction i really enjoy playing characters that are are npcs that are slightly dull in that they are maybe like very wise but not necessarily particularly intelligent or that they're not really good at either of them and i enjoy kind of being that um that type of npc that's just kind of like i don't understand why you are doing x y and z that could just Uh, be a ton of fun for me to play so either one of those two extremes the completely alien um evil twisted creature or the fairly dull npc that you're just like uh i'm not sure why this guy doesn't understand why we're trying to buy a sword from him those (laughs) two extremes are the most enjoyable ones for me
0: i do enjoy a good stranger in a strange land every now and then uh with, like, the last episode of the werewolf game, where there's a of Fenris, Arun, Lupusborn, at a Glasswalker rave moot. <laughs> and uh, they're doing the Scream so Your Truth. Yeah. It's
1: such a fish out of water situation.
0: And they have the, the mic of Scream Your Truth, like you see in the first edition uh, Glasswalker book, which was one of the ideas I actually really liked from that book in particular
1: sounds awesome. I haven't gotten a chance to listen to that episode yet, but I need to.
0: And they're going off, and they're yelling, and they're screaming, and then so they watch him get up, clearly disgruntled, just marching towards, like, the the thing, and they're all like, oh, no! (laughs) And he grabs the mic and just goes, it's too loud! (laughs) (laughs) And that was his truth.
1: Well... That is the truth. So uh, it's a good thing that they shared it. It's better than the child of Gaia like talking stick sharing s- situations I bet.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then he chastised the glass walkers in their own sept, going, you disgust me. You claim to want to embrace the wild, but even your time, your time to be spontaneous
1: is scheduled. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing.
0: But then he goes, wherever it dwells, whenever it breeds, I will fight for this scab so it doesn't fester.
1: How do the glassworkers take that?
0: They're they are like hurting for people. So they're like, okay
1: <laughs> We're just gonna roll with this and also it it's a it's
0: it. it's a real so um, little known fact, uh, Denver actually has some of the highest um, has some of the highest Asian American populations in the country. And so I decided to split it between glasswalkers and um, stargazers, saying it creates that interesting dynamic where you have a, uh, a tribe of the weaver and a tribe that is not for the weaver in any way, shape, or form. Probably just a little more for the weaver than the red talons, which is saying something.
1: Right. You, you don't think that the stargazers are see for me I've always seen them as very weavery, um, in so far as their view of reality is one that is kind of um, like a structured system and everything they do is about control and um, you know balance and so forth and so on. So while they're more wild than the glasswalkers, I do see some interesting like weavery influence on them.
0: I could see that. My thought is is that at least my interpretation of the Stargazer Tribe book when I actually read it for the first time after your guys' episode was that they actually believe in like a thousand paths to, a, to truth. Mm. And so they believe you have to be disciplined, but they believe the road to discipline are completely different because truth is truth. And so Gaia is the immutable thing and that the weaver is the illusion that there is only one path of progress, which is why I view them as a more anti-weaver tribe.
1: I think that's an interesting way of looking at them. I find the Stargazers both fascinating and completely bizarre, so it's definitely um, good to hear other people's opinions on them.
0: Yeah, and I've done several tweaks to the tribes, as you've probably heard in the episodes, to make them a little more, I wouldn't say realistic, but certainly more approachable and less 90s edge.
1: That's always good. It's definitely a, necessary uh, to do a little sanding of the edges of the different tribes to make them a little less lordy.
0: Yeah, especially first edition, uh, get...
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Fenrir are something else, particularly in first edition.
0: Man, uh... And I, I'll be interested in your opinion when you get to it in uh, Werewolf well the podcast. But I'm revisiting the uh, the revised book for the Get of Fenris, and it is so much better. Jesus.
1: Yeah, it's immensely better. <laughs> I I absolutely love that book compared to the first edition book. The first edition book, I always I pick it up and I go, who, why, and what were you thinking when you wrote this? And it would be great as an antagonist book, but um, as a player book, I was like, oh no, oh no, please mm-hmm. don't.
0: Yeah, like, like I had, there were some ideas in there I, I genuinely thought were good ideas. Like the, the, just a couple of things like the split for World War II and the ashamed, like how they're ashamed and kind of the, the warrior, some of the warrior culture stuff wasn't too bad. And because they haven't gotten certain parts of the meta plot, in my current game, I didn't want to hand my player the revised edition book, so that had that had spoilers in it. Right. So I did that, and I'm like, "No swords of Heimdall." I don't think I have to tell you, but just in case, <laughs> no.
1: Yeah, uh, I have heard uh, uh, I've heard bad things and read bad things about the swords, and I'm so glad that in revised they destroyed them because um, mm-hmm. I. Absolutely. One, I hate their name, and two, I hate the fact that they existed in the book to begin with. But yeah,
0: I thought they would have been a good antagonist to bring up in the book. But the fact that they're a playable uh, camp, I thought was a stupid idea.
1: I went to go hang out with the Black Spiral Dancers or something like that. Then I would have been like, "All right, I can you know see that as an antagonist group to utilize, but not as a player camp
0: or." Even so, I have, I've gone on record in saying I don't necessarily have a problem with players playing fascist characters, under, but there has to be certain conditions. One, it's either a redemption arc of some kind where they actually have to face up to the horrors that they have done and actually try and res- do some sort of restorative justice for that.
1: Yeah.
0: Or they lose at the end. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, either one of those. Like, I could see the the redemption arc being a a fun story to, like, have this character, like, slowly break through their prejudices and be able to, like, learn and grow from that. And or, or, hey, we're going to end up punching you a lot and Mm -hmm. you're just going to have to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah, mine was,
0: my idea, like, for a sort of Heimdall character would have been, like, if they're failing, what it would be is they keep fighting Worms, Worm beasts, but they never notice that they're generating worm beasts in the Umbra through their hate and their white supremacy that creates banes that leak off of them. And at the end, they are cornered by spirals and banes, and they see everything they fought for was for naught because they were part of the problem.
1: It's a good arc.
0: And it's a powerful arc, I think. Yeah. Because... no matter your intentions, if you come at it with any sort of supremacy notions, it you will destroy what you claim to protect.
1: I think that would be better run with an NPC though, because I'm just thinking that as a player, and I would, con- I can just imagine having player choices making me like rub, like grind my teeth together, and being like, "All right, I guess that could be a choice that your character would make," but.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it would just get frustrating pretty quickly i think
0: oh i i I can i could see that i could also see it as a short one-on-one game where they know that there is a definite end yeah uh not railroad necessarily but you know an ever narrowing corridor as their terrible choices narrow what choices they can make later on
1: that's a good idea I always like a duet game for digging into things that you couldn't otherwise do with a bigger group, so that might be a direction to take it in.
0: Yeah, I also do, because I do for the the podcast occasionally one-on-one games as well and get those recorded when either people miss or it makes logical sense. Like the the epilogues after uh, B fell to the spiral.
1: Which is awesome.
0: I, um, actually, speaking of, uh, the cultural thing, not, uh, t- you know, to take a, several steps back, uh, missing the cultural parts of things because of your own iconography, uh, from your own culture.
1: Yeah. Um, was it, do you have a question about that or were you no, trying no, to No, I, uh, it,
0: no, it, uh, it reminds, it reminds me of something. I made a vague book status on, uh, the Facebook page about it, but, uh, what happened is, is I was reading the Glasswalker First Edition Tribe book, and they mentioned the kaiju films as like being very pro-worm because they're powered by nuclear energy and destroying things. And because I love the ever-living shit out of those movies, I'm like, you goddamn idiots! It's pro-environmentalism! It's anti-nuclear! What is wrong with you? <laughs>
1: Yeah, way to, like, completely miss the whole point of the of most of those movies, particularly the original, like, Godzillas and everything. It's clearly, like, nuclear testing is bad. This is what's going to happen if we test nukes in, in the water.
0: And if you actually go even further, because there's old-school 1950s manga, like, almost tie-in manga for the original mm. Godzilla that came out, you know, decades after the fact. But they actually show Godzilla with smooth skin, before he gets bombed, so his skin is supposed to be radiation burns.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Like. Yeah, that's even more uh, like (laughs) a a morality tale of (laughs) you're going to hurt this thing and make it really angry, and then it's going to come out and destroy everything.
0: Exactly. So that that was the one thing in the first edition Glasswalker book where I'm like, what? Like, you didn't even need to research this. It's it's not a subtext. It's the text of the goddamn movies.
1: <laughs> it's probably someone <laughs> heard about Godzilla but hadn't actually watched any of it. That's or... my
0: best guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is fair, I suppose. If you've only ever like heard secondhand about Godzilla, I could see you making that misinterpretation.
0: I, I suppose so. Uh... Actually, um, let me think. What what have you been reading or watching recently that have been inspiring some of the games you're running?
1: Mm. So I have been reading a lot of werewolf books, incidentally, um, but not playing too much much of them. The other thing that I've been reading a lot of is Eclipse Phase. Um, so Eclipse Phase is a for folks that might not know is a um, far-ish future, a near-ish to far-ish future sci-fi horror game um, that is amazing. It's a D100 system, and um, the post-apocalyptic transhumanist philosophy behind that game has been a big inspiration for me for Trinity Aeon, which I've been running at various conventions and things like that, and just this idea of what does it mean to be human when you can change forms and things like that. Uh, change your body, change what you call uh, your morph um, or sleeve in Altered Carbon. So I've been watching a lot of Altered Carbon as well. Um, and that idea of just shifting bodies um, is super, super interesting to me. And it's something that I find influencing the type of, uh, of horror games that I run, that this sense of what does it mean to be you if you are moved from body to body um, some body horror is something that I always find fascinating.
0: Okay, uh, have you watched, uh, ever watched Ghost in the Shell, the uh, the actual I... original anime?
1: Oh yeah, a long time ago though, so I couldn't tell you much about it, but I definitely remember watching it.
0: Okay, that's 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 uh, asking very similar questions. So I was wondering if you drew inspiration from that as well.
1: Mm, I've got to go back and rewatch it because um, I- I've got like the, the twinkle of you saw this when you were like fourteen or fifteen. Um, And that was more than a couple of years ago, so.
0: Okay, Uh, the movie is, both uh, Ghost in the Shell anime movies are still excellent, and standalone Complex is still an excellent series.
1: I'll definitely have to go back and and dig into them when I get the chance.
0: The second season, though, is one of those ones where you're like, I know this is a good show, but there's clearly, like, a lot of politics in this for a country I'm not engrossed in their political system over. (laughs)
1: That happens yeah <laughs>
0: so there's just references going right over my head so going back and uh, rereading a lot of these werewolf the apocalypse books what is something you think surprised you going through them all
1: ooh i think the biggest surprise was how and this is going to be really harsh but how poorly written a good portion of them were from late first edition to mid second edition it was clear that white wolf was saying we need books and we need them now and they weren't really determining what would be a quality book and what would be a coherent book and that was a surprise to me because i remember that werewolf being this really well constructed world and every everything seemingly made sense and i realized that i had cherry-picked the books that i had read over the years so the ones that i had picked and read did make a lot of sense and the ones that i had ignored tended to be the ones that were all over the place content wise okay. so it's uh it's interesting to go back and realize like uh, some of this just uh they threw everything at the wall to see what would stick and some of it worked and some of it just didn't
0: yeah i um because i started on revised actually same. Um,
1: I started like real tail end of second edition revised was when I started playing, um, but I, and then reading a little bit of the earlier books later on.
0: Yeah, I started and revise and revise it had already been over for years. Uh, <laughs> I actually started on the Forsaken and went backwards.
1: Oh wow, that's got to be a, a different way to get into it because. If you're coming from Apocalypse 2 Forsaken, you can see all the sharp edges in Forsaken that are like, oh, this is uh, what they decided to keep from the old game. But if you're going back the other direction, I bet that was a a totally different transition.
0: It was, and there was one thing me and all my players commented on our first Werewolf game and going, wow, all these monsters' names are like 10 times easier to pronounce (laughs) than, (laughs) than Forsaken where it's like, wow, there's like five consonants in a row. (laughs) So we did notice that. We actually did call the delirium lunacy for our very first Chronicle still, because that just made more sense to us than the delirium.
1: It does make more sense as a term, honestly. Like delirium (laughs) doesn't quite fit in the same way.
0: But yeah, we started on, um, my gaming journey was 3.5 right out of high school. Played that for about two years, and then I got into Exalted 2nd Edition. And then I got into World of Darkness, or the new World of Darkness, now yes. Chronicles of Darkness. Uh, we started off Mortal, and then we switched over to the Forsaken. And then my player, who got me into Exalted, and by that I mean he didn't stop like hyping up Exalted and telling me to run Exalted for like months on end, uh, started doing the same thing for the Apocalypse. And so I went back i found an old revised book started reading it and that's how we got into it and i told that to one of the i told that story to one of the old white wolf guys because i was running vampire and i'm like and then i got into vampire and all the other games and he's like really from werewolf to vampire because um i don't remember who it was either so and i don't want to call anyone out but he's like to go from exalted to werewolf that makes sense because they're both actiony games and DD to exalted makes sense but werewolf to vampire from going to a kind of hack and slashy game to a social game and he's he works for white wolf so i don't want to be that like uppity fan that went the fuck are you talking about there's so much social in werewolf
1: <laughs> i think that's the thing that people <laughs> forget even people deep in the belly of the beast forget that werewolf is inherently a social game too so you know, yeah, I hear you. Uh,
0: the Red Talons uh, revised tribe book actually has my favorite line in the entirety of the entire Werewolf the Apocalypse line to this day, and it was—it's uh, <clears throat> the second chapter where it's a Shadow Lord, Hamid, pretending to be a lupus born, trying to learn everything he can about the Red Talons. Mm. And he explains his first uh, his first experience with them when it gets to how the red talons feel about the shadow shadow lords. And it was ouch! The first reaction I got from a lot of talons when they heard my tribe was, what does he want? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that makes sense though. The Shadow it's, Lords always want something, right?
0: Yep, and it's it's one of my favorite lines because it's the, it, it plays up that bluntness of the red talons that I genuinely love.
1: The red talons, uh, I think that particularly in that revised tribe book are one of the more interesting tribes in that it's so weird to get into a wolf's mindset and understand what does it mean to be a wolf and how would they approach things. And I think that tribe book does a really good job of actually demonstrating how to to play a wolf in a good way
0: i think so too i also think it's very cool how it goes out of its way way and it's kind of subtle in places not so much in others in that it shows how big of a hip how big of hypocrites the red towns are because no matter how hard they try, they cannot divorce themselves from their human side
1: right yeah ultimately they still have that half human side and they have to live with it and deal with it and interact with it
0: Exactly, and I, I really like how the book deals with that, and how the Red Talons refer to their wolf heart and their human mind.
1: It's definitely good terminology.
0: So yeah, I'm hoping they keep the Red Talons pretty well intact for Werewolf Fifth.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely intrigued to see where they're going to take Werewolf Fifth Edition in the in the development cycle. Um, it's definitely a game that. I think when there's lots of challenges and there's lots of potential pitfalls that they could run into. So we'll have to see where they take it. I've been on a couple of different podcasts where we've talked about what different um, things we'd like to see and what um, directions we'd like them to go. But I'd like them to to really take a solid look at what make Werewolf good and what makes it an interesting game and adhere to that... um, those principles, And if they can catch that lightning in a bottle, then they're going to be good. But if they go off and they try and do something that's completely different or doesn't feel like Werewolf, then they're going to lose a lot of people. So we'll have uh, to see what happens.
0: I agree with that. I, looking at the writing crew that they they introduced in their video, I'm, I'm hopeful.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely hopeful with the folks that Hunter's Entertainment have brought to the table. So we'll see what they can do with it.
0: I'm... Unfortunately, not as hopeful for uh, Earthblood now that the gameplay trailer came out.
1: Yeah, I saw it, and I don't know if you got a chance to listen to the interview with Outstar on the World of Darkness news the other day.
0: I I didn't. I was at work.
1: That's fair. Um, I got a chance to listen to it, and I'm hopeful that it's going to end up being a pretty decent game, because they were talking about, yes, it's going to be a bit of a, um, a Dark Souls kind of game or uh, a God of War style kind of fighting game, but there's gonna be a lot of depth in this story. And they were talking about some of the spiritual elements and the different ways you can approach everything in the game and that you can approach things as a Lupus or a Hamid, and you don't have to necessarily destroy everything as a Krinos to be successful. And they're only gonna have those three forms, but I, I'm hopeful that Earthblood is gonna be a good game.
0: That's fair. Just from the trailer I saw, it was just like, from the where, when he was in Krynos, yeah, it looked very souls like. The wolf, it looked, it almost looked like the wolf and the human were almost like stealth sections, and the Krynos was, whoops, stealth is optional.
1: Yeah, uh, I think it's just going to depend on what your particular direction you're going to take in the game is going to be. They were very, like, forceful to say, no, it is possible to play this as a stealthy or charismatic character so
0: i'm Mm. i that's good that's that's very good to hear because i i saw that gameplay trailer and the one thing that hit me is because from the when i watched the cinematic trailer i was hyped like i Mm -hmm. felt it like that the musical choice the artistic direction the showing of the umbra and that creepy like vine tendrils of like blood and sinew around the worm taint and all that stuff in the Umbra. I'm like, yes. And then I didn't see the Umbra at all in the gameplay trailer.
1: Yeah. uh, That makes me wonder what they're going to do with the Umbra in the game. Uh, I'm both hopeful and a little nervous. So I I don't want to, I I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I'm going to wait and see. Hopefully they come out with another gameplay trailer before the game drops and we can, see what they're going to do with it from there.
0: Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, So, I'm curious, Josh, what are some of the games you are currently running?
1: I am actually not running a game at all actively at the moment, which is probably the first time in, like, five years that I have not been running a game, (laughs) at least, like, um, somewhat. Um, I technically have a 5e Curse of Strahd game, very modified Curse of Strahd game that I have on like semi-permanent hiatus um, while I'm waiting for my players to figure out how we're gonna do um, the Zoom sort of uh, video game, uh, video conferencing uh, running uh, setup. So we'll see if I can get that back on its feet. But right now I'm playing in a couple of games, which I'm very excited about. I'm actually playing in a Star Trek Adventures game and a modified Changeling game um, run by the folks at walking away from Arcadia. So uh, getting to play in both of those games is very, very fun.
0: That sounds very fun. I do like the 2D20 system uh, for, Uh, like, Star Trek and things like that.
1: Yeah, I didn't know uh, anything about it, really, before I started playing Star Trek Adventures, and I am so blown away by how well-designed it is that I want to, like, steal parts of the system and use them in other games, which is not the type of person that I tend to be. I usually try to play a game, like as it is um, and just roll with it. But I love uh, the 2D20 stuff that's in Star Trek Adventures. I think it is so super well-designed.
0: And I know it's a little different than the 2D20 stuff for Conan, but there's enough mesh over that I just really like it because the other one, Infinity, I think is the other 2D20 one. They have that in the Mutants something
1: mutant chronicles maybe that's the one
0: yeah that's the one Mm -hmm. uh but infinity is a very crunchy duty 2d20 and i'm not a huge fan of that 2d20 i think works best with uh light medium to light uh crunch
1: yeah i think that's true the interesting thing about star trek is it's both crunchy and not crunchy like it has very narrative game design kind of systems but then you have um you have ship combat and ship combat is super crunchy so it's this weird mix of like when you're doing things as an individual things can be almost like uh, a narrative story game and then you get into ship combat and you're like here is a super Simulationist, crunchy ship combat system, but every player, it's an opportunity to actually be involved in running the ship during ship combat. So it's this weird, yeah, it's this weird balance of everything.
0: Okay, Uh, yeah, I like I like Conan. I think it has the. It's a little more crunchy, at least on a personal level or character level, than uh, Star Trek is. But uh, because that's the one I'm. One of the games I'm running for Gen Con, digital Gen Con, this, this year is Conan again. And That's
1: awesome. I haven't I, got a chance to play Conan yet.
0: I like it. Uh, the only issue is that Conan does let you just f- make completely randomized characters. Okay. Which is great for convention play. Um, unfortunately, the genius that I am, I created a pirate-themed game, so I have to personally design every character to make sure they at least have the ability to swim.
1: <laughs> that is probably going to be very important.
0: <laughs> and so I've had to go in and do that, and i got to write up the character bios, too. That's what this... Uh, I'm not running a game this weekend, so this weekend is going to be getting the last of my Gen Con pre-gens. Created. I got all my Scion ones done, I'm about halfway done with my Conan characters, and then I got to do my V5 characters. There you go.
1: So you're running V5, you're running Conan, and you're running Scion. Are you running anything else?
0: No, I was going to run Changeling the Lost 2nd Edition, but when uh, we got asked if we wanted to do any all the games we did last time or not, I looked at my Changeling blurb and I'm like... I wrote this on a whim, and I have no idea what I was thinking, so I'd like to drop this one.
1: Yeah, that's fair. It's funny, I was gonna try and play some games with the Wrecking Crew, um, rather than run any this year, and everything got filled up uh, almost immediately, so I was like, well, I guess I'm not gonna have that opportunity this year. <laughs>
0: oh, man. Also, just as a side thing, I don't know if this happens in, uh, in Star Trek as much, but for some reason, whenever we play Conan, have you ever noticed that 50% of the rolls end up with a natural 20 at some point?
1: Yep, uh, it seems to happen in uh, Star Trek Adventures 2 where I'm just like, I want a 1, and I don't want a 20 for once. Please stop rolling 20s.
0: <laughs> I roll more natural 20s in Conan than any other game.
1: Yep, 100% of the time. <laughs>
0: Like, at one point, because you're supposed to do some sort of minor mishap or, you know, get Doom for the storyteller or whatever. And at one point, like, I did, I tried to narrate it to make it interesting. I'm like, I can't, just give me Doom. Whatever.
1: I love that it's called Doom in Conan. In Star Trek, it's called Threat, which makes sense, but Doom has such a better ring to it.
0: Yeah, it's Doom and Conan. I think it's Threat and John Carter as well. Okay. Uh, So I think they just named it special for at least Conan. It might be Doom in another game too, since there are a couple of them. And Momentum, obviously.
1: Yep. Yeah, Momentum makes sense to be kind of standard across the games. That's a good term for it.
0: Yeah. The only one uh, I'm interested in doing is... uh. That will be interesting. I should say is the rolling of uh, dice for Conan digitally, because the damage dice are kind of interesting for Conan. I don't know what the damage dice are like for uh, for Star Trek, because the damage dice I know are distinctly different in John Carter than they are from Conan.
1: Yeah. Do you have special dice in Conan for the damage dice? Or are they like? that you have to buy special no you don't have to buy
0: special they're, they're just d6s okay and, and rolling a one does one damage rolling a two Oops. does two damage rolling a three or a four does zero damage and rolling a five or a six does one damage plus one ef- plus any effects on the weapon uh,
1: okay so it's the same type of dice but in star trek they sell special star trek dice So you can get those, and then they have the different things that you do on the die itself.
0: Yeah, they have that for Conan, too. Luckily, the Conan ones, they still have the numbers on there, so you can still use the Conan dice as regular D6s. There you go. Which I really like. It's one of the things I was not a fan of for the uh, V5 special dice. Because you can't use the V5 dice for anything
1: else. Yeah, if I can't use expensive dice for something other than your game, I'm probably not going to get your special spe- uh, expensive dice.
0: I got them because I bought the, uh, I think it was not the Methuselah pack. No, I don't, I'm not spending $500 on a game. Uh, it was the elder pack, I think where I got the core book, both, uh, sect mm. books and the storyteller screen and the dice. Nice.
1: Uh, I had initially purchased the elder edition as well. And, uh, In the kerfluffle that happened with V5, I ended up cancelling my order, partially because I realized I was never going to run V5. Um, And there's nothing wrong with V5. I think it's a perfectly well-designed system. I actually think it's a really good system, and I think the storyline is really good, um, but I don't really have that deep of an interest in Vampire, and uh, none of my players wanted to play. So I was like, I'm going to cancel my order. This is a good time to do it. Um, and it's been good because no one has asked me to to play V5 cents, so hasn't been a bad decision ultimately.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a, that's always fine, you know. I really liked it when I ran the. I really liked playing in the demo. My first my first ever GenCon at the 50th anniversary. I really had fun. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then I really mm. enjoyed running it. Uh, that one was a bit of a grinder just because I ran the same, the exact same, uh, scenario for every scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah, I ran five demos of V5 at that Gen Con, so I, uh, understand where you're like, at the end of it, like, wow, I have run this identical scenario so many times that I could probably run it blind.
0: Yeah, but I did have fun with it because each one did end up differently. I, and each of the player groups that year, I think that was the... no, every Gen Con I've had one weird group of people where I'm like, I might have to ask someone to step in. Uh-oh. Like, not not super bad. Like, I don't want to give that impression, but one where it's just like, mm, you're coming a little extra, champ.
1: Yeah, I could see that happening. Gen the... Con's got its ups and downs with that.
0: Yeah, for the V5 game, it was two friends in a larger group. And this one was getting a little into it, a little into me. He's like, I'm going to go in, I'm going to rip out his skull, and I'm going to fuck. And his friend's like, whoa, 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 we're in public. <laughs> and he was screaming that, or about to scream that, in the gaming hall that we're playing in. Wow. And so, I'm so, glad so his we,
1: friend stepped in, at least.
0: Yeah, I was just like... And then, so we got to a break, and we're like I might have to ask someone to come over. This guy was about to skull fuck someone in my game.
1: <laughs> That's absolutely like my like STX card moment. <laughs> be like, yeah. nope, I'm done. Stop.
0: Done. Yeah, and I didn't have that. I actually didn't even know about those mechanics uh, mm. going into that Gen Con. Uh, mechanics I wish were in the core vampire book, not the uh, not just the PDF. Yeah.
1: Supposedly, they're in the reprints at this stage. So Are
0: they? Okay. That's good. That's what I'm
1: hearing, people. Yep.
0: And the other one was during Changeling the Dreaming, and it was two guys who they didn't understand the sensitivity of issues. They thought that they were those people who make fun of themselves, but as a consequence, they make fun of everything else. Uh. And uh, I had some people who wanted to go by they... They then pronouns, they they were very explicit in that their characters uh, were non-binary, uh, agendered, things like that. And they started writing pronouns. And so one's like, one who was a, a she on uh, Sealy was thinking of putting, going, how about my pronoun is your majesty? And I'm just like, oh, fuck. Mm. As it's just them two. And then everyone else at the table, it was like a creaking door as all their heads turned at them with daggers in their eyes. Ouch. And I had to go later on just break everyone. And then I went over and I'm like, so here's the situation. How did this happen? Everyone came together at the end of the game. Like, kind of people picked up that these guys... People
1: be great.
0: Yeah. They picked up that these guys weren't being malicious that it was ignorance not maliciousness
1: which like something but still
0: oh yeah no i like i asked them to stop obviously but and that they they all got like kind of a little rapport with each other and things like that so that was nice at least
1: yeah so
0: so i'm wondering what's gonna happen this year
1: I look forward to talking to you post Gen Con to hear where your stories <laughs> are going to be, because being <laughs> online even, we'll have to see how, uh, how things go.
0: Yeah, uh, so uh, back to you real quick then. What would you say, I know Werewolf is, so would you say Werewolf is your favorite uh, World of Darkness game?
1: It's my favorite World of Darkness game, yes.
0: Okay, what would you say your second favorite World of Darkness game is and why?
1: Uh, mage and it's really close it's really close between werewolf and mage for me Uh, werewolf is my favorite because I love the um, the balance of anger and spirituality and mage for me is this balance between uh, philosophy and spirituality and the complex nature of what reality is I love those sorts of questions in games so mage and werewolf are really really close
0: Makes sense. Uh, So now, I think you know what I'm going to ask, since uh, you were very explicit in saying Werewolf is your favorite World of Darkness game, what would you say your favorite game is?
1: My favorite RPG of all time is Aberrant. Aberrant First Edition was the game that I played uh, every time I got a chance to uh, when I was in my early 20s, and I love it and would run the heck out of it. It was actually the first role-playing game I ran while I was in the army. I ran a game of it while I was in Korea, and I talked a whole group of people into playing uh, who had never played RPGs ever before. Um, And I am super excited for second edition because it's my favorite game of all time.
0: And you'll have enough story path systems under your belt to hopefully pick up on everything.
1: I'm hoping it makes a lot of sense, and hopefully I've run StoryPath enough that I'll be able to pick it up and just run with it.
0: What would you say as advice to anyone listening for getting into writing for their favorite games, including uh, Storyteller's Vault, DM's Guild, or even spinning up a third-party thing or pitching themselves to smaller third-party publishers like High Level Games?
1: The best thing to do is write, which I know is a cliche sort of thing to say, but write up something, write up a monster, write up a villain, write up um, an antagonist of some form. Do that and use that and polish it and make sure it fits everything that you want it to look like and pitch that to a a game company and say, hey, I created this monster. Um, I'd really like to write up maybe some more about it what do you think of this? Or you can put it up on the vault or the story path nexus or the DM's guild. Things like that, one, people buy them because they're always looking for new monsters and antagonists and villains to use in their game. And two, it's a good, easy path to get started with something. Um, If you do one or two at a time, you can build up a whole little booklet of them and then you can put that out And you can see what people like about it, what sort of feedback they give you, and grow from that. Um, But I'm also, when at high level games, I'm always looking for people to write up creatures and monsters and characters. So being able to uh, look at someone and say, hey, you can do good stats is something that I'm always going to kind of like find that person later and go, hey, you submitted X, Y, and Z to us. I think that was really good. I need some more of this and then I'm going to get that person to do more work uh, on that project.
0: Very cool. How do you think it is... I don't know, how long have you been writing for games?
1: So, I've only been writing for games for three years now. But in that time, I've worked for six different companies and published over 100 different products on various community content, or been involved with over 100 products on various community content websites.
0: Wow, it's impressive, because I was going to ask, how do you think public self-publishing or getting into RPG writing compares to now to when you started, but I don't think that, that question's valid.
1: No, the only advantage now is there's more community content. Even three years ago, there was only really the DM's Guild, and the Storyteller's Vault was just barely starting. Um, in that time... Uh, there's been an explosion of community content sites. So now there's the Call of Cthulhu community content site. There's a community content for the Cypher system. There's community content for pretty much every major system that is out there. So I tell people, build some community content. It doesn't hurt for you to take the game that you love the most, whatever that game happens to be, see if there's a community content site for it, write something, and see what sort of feedback you get from people on it. Very cool.
0: I keep get i, I uh, keep getting reminded that I wrote something for Call of Cthulhu around the time that that opened up, and I keep seeing downloads for it. And I'm just like, oh, cool, thanks. It's uh, awesome. I've also noticed if you look up look it up, uh, people tried running it uh, online, apparently. At least adventures with the exact same name.
1: Was, did they create a virtual tabletop adventure?
0: Um, no, it was just like little mini convention get, uh, digital get together things. They... Oh, cool. I just see Pikmin's Legacy join this many slots, and I'm like, hey. And then on the drive through it's got like four point some stars, which is pretty good. But then I saw someone actually write a Fallout review with like three stars and three out of five stars. I'm like, thank you. Every criticism, I was just like, absolutely what I thought.
1: Yeah, it's always the worst. Um, <laughs> whenever I I get a review and I'm always nervous. I'm like, okay, let's see what the like, star rating is, and let's we'll see what the actual review is, and hopefully it's a four or above, because four, four or above doesn't seem to hurt sales. A three is always like, eh, eh, this could hurt the sales of this product.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think most people look at the average, I think, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. it seems so. to be that way.
0: Because, uh, yeah... I- Remember you uh reaching out after I did the Snowhaven review <laughs> and he's so like, yep.
1: I was really happy with your Snowhaven review by the way, and I think all of your like critiques were completely valid and I appreciate all of them and it's actually got me thinking about some different products that we're going to be hopefully uh producing to fix some of those holes that you noticed within the Snowhaven setting. So,
0: good. I'm looking forward to it. I do like Snowhaven. It It is one of those settings, like most settings, I would just pick apart and insert into other games.
1: Yeah, which is what I expect most people would do with it. Um, It would be awesome if people were running it directly from the book. But I anticipate, particularly with the way 5th edition is, that people are just going to steal bits and pieces of it. And I think that's totally cool.
0: Yeah, I think there's only two settings that have inspired me enough in all of D&D history to want to run... Uh, exclusively that. And there's a third one that I'm playing with, but I just gotta actually run it before I know if I want to, and sit down and read it. And that's uh, Eberron and uh, the Primeval World of Thule.
1: Nice. Yeah, Eberron is one of my favorite settings of all time, and it's such a coherent setting that I think it's easy to want to run that straight from the book, as it were.
0: Yeah, and it's designed in such a way that huge elements of it don't function without the setting that was built around it.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Completely.
0: All right, Josh, uh, we have one last really big question for you. Okay. And it's, Ready the for final, it. and it's the final big question. It is the big question we ask everyone on the show. And it is if resources, time, people, etc. If nothing was an issue, what would your dream game be that you could run if nothing was an issue and you just had the ability to do it?
1: So the dream game that I would run in that scenario um, is actually a game that, weirdly enough, I pitched out in the world at one point um, where I said, hey, I want to run a and d game for Stephen Colbert, for um, Deborah Anwall, Kevin Smith, and um, uh, Will Wheaton. Those were all the people I said, I would love to just run a D&D game for these folks. Um, and incidentally, every one of those people has played D&D since then, um, and a couple of them together. So that... Um, it, maybe taking the question in a different direction, but that's the uh, that's the game. If there were no challenges on making it happen, that's the thing that I would do.
0: All right, perfect. Hey, Josh, where can uh, people find you? And if there's anything you want to plug, now's the time to do it.
1: Sure. So right now, Snowhaven for 5th edition, Pathfinder 1st edition is on sale for 25% off on DriveThruRPG, so please go and check that out. Um, You can find us on highlevelgames.ca. That's highlevelgames.ca. Yes, we're Canadian. I'm sorry. Um, You can also find me on Werewolf the Podcast, on Podbean, or any of the podcatcher programs of your choice. Um, Or you can find us on Twitter at PodcastWerewolf or at HLG underscore corporate and talk to us in any of those places.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Josh. That was Josh Heath. I'm Keegan. You can find us on Facebook, Podbean, YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts. We even have a Discord now, and I will drop that description, or drop that link in the description below. But you'll never find me on Twitter. I find it accessible. Have a great day, everyone.